0: Scuderia F1, the podcast that's always up to speed with the latest Formula 1 news. Follow us on Twitter at f one pod and subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Daly and Kevin Laramay.
1: And good day, good night, welcome to Scuderia F1, the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula 1. I'm Kevin Laramay with Mark Daly as always. Thanks for listening, and thanks for listening to us through overtime. Media, Mark, how you doing tonight?
0: Not too bad, thanks, Kevin. On location here, uh, I've been uh, on the road for uh, for work the past couple of days, so I'm I'm not really used to the surroundings here. But whatever, we're, we're here to talk about Formula One, and I'm going to struggle through it as best I can.
1: Well, I saw your settings on uh, on social media when you tweeted. It. Not a bad uh, <laughs> not a bad view. So uh, I'll be quite happy at your settings.
0: Oh, no, I'm here in Kelowna, British Columbia, for a a conference, and I've got a lovely hotel room right on the lake, so I've got no complaints. Well, I do have one complaint, and that's uh, I have to leave tomorrow night. So, unfortunately, it was just kind of a short trip, but uh, I've been enjoying it. The weather's nice here, a little chilly, but that's okay.
1: Speaking of lake, Mark, let's talk about cars going around a lake on a Formula One track. Yes, Albert oh, well, Park. I see what you
0: did there. That's hey, clever. Hey,
1: not bad, eh? King of the Segway, they say. <laughs> uh, but uh, Albert Park, Melbourne, Melbourne, as they say, down in Melbourne, down on the first Grand Prix of the 2019 season, that was a fun one. Yeah, definitely
0: a big improvement from from last year when it was one under bizarre circumstances when Sebastian Vettel passed Lewis Hamilton in the pit lane under the virtual safety car in a a way that nobody expected. And yeah, we were talking about things that were happening on the track. It's not really the greatest track for overtaking, but there was still plenty of drama, plenty of things happening, lots of things to talk about. And I, I agree, I totally enjoyed it. It was kind of nice to see the unexpected happen and I'm talking, of course, of Valtteri Bottas, basically leading from start to finish and really kind of making a statement, not just to win the, the first race of the year, but to really dominate in the way that he did
1: so. We'll get to Valtteri Bottas in, uh, in, uh, later on in the show. And I think uh, mentally he did a lot of work and uh, yes. the offseason. I think we saw that on a Sunday. Just to mention, I've plowed through Netflix's Drive to Survive. I'm all caught up, and <laughs> it will help me because uh, the characters that we see in that show, especially like the ones that comes off really good, like Danny Ricardo, not like necessarily like Verstappen and Stroll, which do not necessarily come off that great. But uh, Ricardo is a darling of that series, and his debut mm-hmm. is unfortunate. Mark as soon as the start of the race, like it happened. You see the, the, the launch of the cars off the line. And see I see the Renault go to our left, to his right, on the grass. I'm like, oh! And then you see the front wing just stay there. And he hit a big bump. It was a dip, actually. It was a, a massive gutter on the side of the road. And it gutted the bottom of the car and the front wing of the Renault. And it was unfortunate, too, because now I feel like I know these people. Because of the drive to survive, because of the Netflix show, outside mm-hmm. of Mercedes and Ferrari, I feel like I know those these people now. And I'm like, I was deeply involved watching the race just because of that show. It's crazy.
0: Yeah, you know what? I, I totally agree, Kevin, because it gives a little bit more context. And both you and I know in the dealings that we have with the, the, the professional soccer players for the Canadian men's national team and for the Montreal Impact, the Vancouver Whitecaps and other MLS clubs most of the time that we see them are in these press scrums where it's all highly managed and controlled and you get just these basic, you know, cliches and, you know, we had our backs up against the wall and we you'll ground out a win or whatever it might be and the responses are always very measured and very scripted and I always find that the stuff that is uh, a lot more candid and off the cuff is when you can get these guys away from those managed settings and and, and I felt very much that Netflix did for Formula One uh, what I've kind of experienced in my own career with uh, professional athletes and I think it really gave more of a window into what some of these guys are, are are like to a certain extent, because I think it is a a very solitary thing, and and a lot of the time, w- when we do see them, especially here in North America, especially in Canada, we don't get a lot of the content. So what we tend to see is the FIA press conference and, and things like that, where they're all basically toying the company line, so to speak, and in very managed or uh, managed responses. So. To see it like that, I, I found it quite refre- refreshing, and I totally agree with what you say. Some guys come off more of the Darlings, and some come off like real villains, and uh, you know, Sergio Perez was another one when they have that one episode that basically talks about him and Esteban Ocon. He was another one, uh, like, like you were saying, like Max Verstappen, like uh, Landstroll came off of uh, a, a little bit less of a brighter light compared to some of the other drivers and team managers.
1: Yep, and it actually did influence how I viewed the race. And I thought that was brilliant. And I think the idea of Liberty Media to create that show and the partnership with Netflix to make that Mm -hmm. show happen, I really hope that uh, the Mercs and Ferrari uh, allow the camera this year because, well, they're going to have to because... I bet there's going to be a lot of new fans of Formula One after watching this show, but uh, let's talk about the race. Let's continue to talk about the Mm -hmm. race. Of course, we had uh, Lewis Hamilton on pole, uh, followed uh, by Valtteri Bottas, and right off the start, Valtteri Bottas just went off and was never seen again.
0: Yeah, amazing. I I don't think I I really expected to see Bottas do that because let's face it, he's under a lot of pressure this year. Uh, Total Wolf has been saying for months that that uh, Bottas has to deliver Lewis Hamilton type performances this year if he's going to stick with Mercedes for next year and beyond because he's in the last year of his contract and so he's he's got to do a lot of work to to get that new deal there. But having said that, you know, it is quite amazing to me to see what, what Botas did. I mean, there, there, there's no real dispute that I think that he's a quick driver, he's a talented driver. But it's almost felt that he's had a little bit of bad luck and sometimes maybe hasn't been, I don't know, aggressive enough or maybe has deferred a little bit too much and, and followed the, uh, the, the team orders and desires. Because, of course, it's Lewis Hamilton's team. And being the multiple world champion that he is, that uh, that he's always going to get the benefit of the calls. So uh, last year he had uh, some bad luck in a couple of races for one reason or another or team orders that prevented him from winning a race. So I think 2018 is really a season he wants to forget but he really made a statement that uh, that this year he's here and at least through one race I mean he really did, to my mind he looked a, mo- a lot more like Lewis Hamilton did than Lewis Hamilton actually did on Sunday but there may be another reason for that which we'll get to in a couple of minutes.
1: Yeah there might be a um, a technical reason uh, for Lewis Hamilton and how his car reacted versus um, Bottas. But Bottas mentioned quickly in an offhand comment on the podium uh, to uh, Mark Weber who was doing the post-race, I would say, questions. Uh, he, he mentioned you, we did a lot of work in the off season, and he said in the car and then he pointed to his temple saying in my mind too, I did a lot of work in my mind. And I think it's... Uh, I think we're gonna see Botas going after it this year. Just the fact that he yep. did not like when Toto Wolf says don't worry about the don't worry about the fastest lap. Don't worry about that point. He still did. He still went after it and he got it and he got the twenty six point performance. But you see a certain a certain click I think has been made with Valtteri Botas. I see a certain amount of attitude and confidence that you actually need to win a Formula One championship. I see a different Botas, Mark. I see a different Valtteri Botas. He does not seem to be the nice Finnish uh, driver that we're used to seeing. Like, the, no, he seems like he's cutthroat maybe this year.
0: Yeah, there, there definitely seems to be a bit more of an edge to, to Valtteri this year than compared to the last couple of years. And let, let's face it, I mean, the only way that he's going to get that sort of preferential treatment, I guess you could say, is that yeah, if you want to call it that, is if he, if he wants the benefit of the calls and the decisions to go his way, then he's going to have to put himself in a decision that it would be illogical for Mercedes to say okay well let Lewis have this one or get out of the way or whatever it might be and the only way that he's going to do that is to become a legit contender in the world championship and stay ahead of Lewis Hamilton in the points that at some point that it would only just make sense that well you know Voltaire's is the guy that's leading the championship he's the one that's got the legit chance to win the, the this thing and the only way he's going to do that is to beat Lewis Hamilton on the track as as a, a big of a statement as that is that's really what he's got got to do
1: it is what he's got to do and he's got to do it this way too beating him off the line and even that it was hilarious looking at uh, hearing the park Ferme comments i like that aspect too we had martin brundle in the park Ferme getting questions uh, to the drivers right when they're taking their helmet off i love that because it doesn't give any time for the driver to get to the company line so he can't tow it but they've asked lewis how does he feel about his performance he's like, well. I have to be happy for the team and say one, two. Mm. I'm not the one who's winning, but I'm still really happy for the team. Look at his performance. And as well, I finished second. I have an idea why we finished second. I have to go talk to my engineers before I mention it to you. But uh, yeah, so Lewis Hamilton knows why he wasn't as fast as anticipated. But you got to tip your hat to Bottas. Bottas took that one. No one lost this race. This is a race that Valtteri Bottas went after and won.
0: Yeah, he really grabbed the bull by the horns and took full advantage of that. And I, I might be jumping ahead a little bit here, Kevin, but I did want to just uh, point out one other comment. Since you just talked about uh, Martin Brundle talking to Lewis Hamilton, I thought it was kind of interesting as well when he asked him uh, about how later in the race that he was caught up by uh, Max Verstappen. He said, uh, how did that go? Were you able to uh, fend him off and uh, defend your position with uh, without too many problems? And I thought that Hamilton's response was very interesting. He said, oh, yeah, it, it was no problem. He didn't even really have to, to to think about that. Obviously, he was not as quick as he wanted to be, and he could not match uh, Valtteri's speed, but he still had enough in the car that when Hamilton, or sorry, when uh, Verstappen got close in that uh, that closing stage, and at one point, I think God within a within about a second or so, he was able to 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 match that and and ultimately just stay uh, far enough ahead of him to uh, defend that second uh, position and uh, and bring it home that way. But I thought it was very telling that even though that uh, that the Honda Red Bull was was much quicker, that still the struggling Mercedes still didn't have uh, too many problems to stay ahead of him.
1: Yep. So we had two Mercedes uh, starting uh, one and two and finished one and two. Number three at the finish line with the Oh, I missed black and flat black and red uh what's the what's the word in English for the black and it's black and white. The checkered flag. Checkered flag. Sorry. I was <laughs> I had it. I had it on my tip of my tongue and it went away and it came back. He saw the checkered flag third. Max Verstappen with his first podium of twenty nineteen. Honda's first podium in forever, Mark. That's actually a, probably a good sign for red bull and honda uh, but uh max verstappen mentioned in the comments after the race that he felt the honda engine gave him a chance at least to, to stay with the top team to have a go in his own words so honda having a go at mercedes and ferrari honda having a podium is the red bull and honda partnership off to a good start
0: yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a, a really a fantastic result for them, obviously for Honda, because they've had a lot of bad PR over the past couple of years, but they've really done a lot of work over the last year or so. And basically last year's Toro Rosso was just a Honda test bed, if, if you want to put it in such a simple terms, because they really took a lot of the penalties uh, for, for like the you know grid penalties last year. So they could really push the limits on that engine and really develop it and find out where the flaws were. And so far, it seems to be uh, paying dividends. Of course, it's a very small sample size, only one race. But the thing was, watching that race o- over the, uh, the, the as as it unfolded, it uh, to me, it, it didn't really look like they'd lost all that much uh, compared to last year. And, th- and that's what Honda had been saying, that this year was going to be a year where they wanted to deliver uh, performance and reliability that was on a similar, if not equal level, to what they had previously with Renault. And of course, if they can exceed that and they can find Find more power, they can uh, get more speed and everything. Then, of course, that's uh, going to be the long-term goal. But at the very least, I didn't feel like um, you know watching. <clears throat> excuse me, watching Max Verstappen, that there was a different engine in the back of that car. So I, I think it's a very, very promising start. And it's gonna be interesting too, because a lot of the uh, the drivers, uh, when we hear them over the course of the weekend in uh, in Melbourne, they tend to say, well, you know, this is a kind of a unique track and what happens here doesn't really have a, a, a lot of commonalities with other circuits that they race at. So we're, we're going to Bahrain next weekend and then we got China, and then after that we got Azerbaijan. So we've got three or four very different kinds of circuits over Over the opening two months of the season so it's going to be very interesting to see you know six weeks from now when when we finish that fourth or fifth race just to see where the cars are see what the world championship standings are looking like at that time and then just look well well, was that just a bit of a fluke for mercedes in australia and then ferrari kind of went back to where they we're expected to be after winter testing, how are Honda and Red Bull doing, all these different things. So it's really an interesting situation to really kind of gauge and and kind of really figure out where all of the teams are, just only one race into it.
1: No, I agree, Mark. And we'll continue to talk about Honda with Red Bull right after this quick break. Some words from our sponsors.
0: Passion, drive, and patience.
1: And we're back on Scuderia F1 Podcast. I'm Kevin Army, joined by Mark Daly as always. Thanks for the follow. Thanks for the sharing. And thank you for reviewing our show on iTunes. Mark uh, showed me and shared with me this picture that he took earlier this week. We were number one in the sports and recreation category in podcasts on Apple Podcasts in Canada uh, earlier this week. Uh, that was quite fun to see. And we thank every one of you for your support.
0: Absolutely. It was a really wonderful and big shout out to all the listeners to help us get there and uh, very unexpected, but the the show has been growing quite a bit, uh, especially over the off-season, so it's uh, really a a nice little feather to put in the cap and uh, it at least gives us a lot of encouragement that the show's in the right direction and uh, we, we found something that works and, well what's not to work? It's Formula One. We all love it. We love to talk about it. We love to dissect each and every tiny bit of news and action on the track and uh, that's certainly what we enjoy each and every week. So there are certainly lots of other talking points to come out of the Australian Grand Prix and we've talked a little bit about uh, Mercedes. We've talked a little bit about Red Bull Honda. Let's talk about the scarlet red elephant in the room and that would be the SF90, the Ferrari Ferrari coming home in fourth and fifth, Sebastian Vettel taking the fourth position, Charles Leclerc taking P5, uh, basically just a second or so behind his teammates. Although if there were no team orders, I think that uh, (laughs) it's pretty obvious that that situation would have been reversed. Vettel just did not have any pace uh, compared to the uh, well the the three cars in front of him uh, much like uh, Lewis Hamilton uh, did not have the pace that he expected the ferraris were just uh, that much uh, slower and honest excuse me honestly i think that's a, a bit of a concerning result for for ferrari considering how good and how strong they looked throughout uh, winter testing the big question that uh, that came out of winter testing was Is the car going to be reliable? Is the engine reliable? It obviously wasn't a reliability problem, but... They just could not figure out why they did not have any pace compared to the cars in front of them on on Sunday and even why Vettel did not have any pace compared to his uh, teammate. He did say afterwards that he did not have the same amount of grip in the car that he had during testing, but certainly they're going to have to get that uh, turned around because what was being touted as a half a second uh, per lap advantage over the Mercedes and other cars certainly has become perhaps maybe a half a second per lap deficit compared to the Mercedes.
1: I think you hit the nail on the head when you mentioned the comments of Sebastian Vettel when you mentioned he did not have the same amount of grip. When you hear grip in Formula 1 and when you hear a driver complaining about his lack of grip, you either think aero, aerodynamics, which in this case I don't think this was what he was referring to, I think you're talking about setup of your suspensions and setup of those part of the car, the the suspension parts and the drivetrain and everything that goes with the suspension uh, at that moment. So that part of the car, I mean. So for me, that's what I hear. I hear, oh, maybe we missed the setup. Maybe we messed it up. It wasn't the right setup for our suspensions and it did affect our performance of the car, especially in the race aspect. So maybe that's what went wrong. Maybe it's just the Ferrari engine, maybe just a bit behind what the Merc engine is, maybe. But if you look at Leclerc, Leclerc did not have necessarily a great race, he had some mistakes, but at the end of the race he was pushing hard and he would have overtaken Vettel for sure. But... That's funny because they've asked him after the race, Mark. They're like, so Charles, uh, did did you ask permission to overtake Sebastian? And did they shut you down? Like, yeah, yeah. I (laughs) I thought the conversation was on TV with the radio. So that's why I didn't say anything. But no, I've asked and they said no overtaking. So I stayed there.
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting too, Kevin, because uh, the the reason that they gave uh, for not allowing him to uh, pass Sebastian was that they didn't want to risk the cars and the possibility of an accident of the two of them, uh, you know, jockeying for position. So that, that was interesting because you could look at it uh, one of two ways that that even though Sebastian Vettel was uh, slower than Charles Leclerc his car just wasn't working well for him that he wasn't necessarily going to move out of the way to let his teammate have a bit of a go and see if he could maybe close the gap to uh, Max Verstappen in front of him if that was even possible I'm, I can't remember off the top of my head how far they were behind at that point in the race but it just kind of uh, I, I thought it was just kind of an interesting way that uh, Ferrari uh, worded it uh, and I mean obviously Vettel is the number one guy in that team and uh, I, I don't think it would have uh, set a, a very good precedent for Sebastian. I think they want to keep him in the right uh, headspace and uh, certainly telling him to move over for his teammate at the very first race of the year uh, may not have gone over very well with the four-time world champion Kevin.
1: No and uh, or being beaten by his new young teammate who's like is he even 19 year old yet? I think he's still 18. The guy's, the guy's he's a kid. So imagine the kid beating Vettel in his first race for Ferrari. Yeah, that would not necessarily have looked good on Vettel and we all know that uh Sebastian Vettel has a big ego. Sebastian Vettel is always second to walk into a room after his ego. So Charles live uh <laughs> might have been a good move just stay there just just make sh- just prolong that debate because that debate's going to happen, Mark. I've been talking about it since last yeah. year. That Ferrari needed this, this big wave of freshness, right? He's like a, he he's enthusiasm personified. He's happy, he's smart, he's enthusiastic, and he's got a past. But he knows, uh, because of his godfather, his godfather was Zul Bianchi, right? So, so mm-hmm. he does know the risk, of course, of what Formula One, and he know he's been raised in Monaco in Formula One, so. He knows what he's doing, Charles Leclerc. I think he might have been might be the most exciting prospect, at least in my eyes, since Jacques Villeneuve. Maybe that's just both both are francophone, both are young, great superstars. Anyways, I'm I'm digressing, but I, I just think that Ferrari needed this and it's just prolonging the debate because the debate's gonna happen. Charles Leclerc is going to overtake Sebastian Vettel a few times this year, and we're going to talk about it.
0: Yeah, I I think it's uh, obviously like you say, Kevin, I think it's just a question of when and not if. And I I think that the best thing that Ferrari can do is maybe just try and manage that situation because if it happens too quickly, too soon, then it, it could become a very difficult and unmanageable situation in the garage, between the, the, the two sides of the garage, between Vettel and and uh, Charles Leclerc. So th- they have to be very careful with that. And of course, they put all their money behind Sebastian Vettel. So it just optically, it would not look all that great if they are all of a sudden to, uh, you know, kind of push him to one side and just go with the, the latest and greatest kind of thing. I mean, I, I'm convinced that, um, that Charles is going to happen for him. I, I think obviously he's got the uh all, all the skills and character uh, characteristics to become a winning grand prix driver whether or not that uh, you know could translate into a future world champion time will only tell but i mean what we've seen in his uh, first uh, year in formula 1 driving what was uh, A middle of the pack, sort of an occasionally competitive uh, Sauber C37. And it was just to me, I thought it was amazing how he was able to extract more performance out of that car uh, compared to his teammate, Marcus Ericsson, who in theory has identical equipment, right? And the thing was like, Charles was so much quicker than Ericsson was in, in a car that was you know, just fairly ordinary, not one of the best uh, Formula One cars out there. And it wasn't even close. I mean, he he did have some bad luck uh, later in the season. Uh, I I think definitely that uh, 2018 finished not quite as bright as, say, it it started for him. But overall, I mean, we we really got a good look at uh, at what, what Charles Leclerc is all about. And, of course, that's a big reason why Ferrari decided to take him on. And, of course, they have... Well, they had their pick of the drivers, right? I mean, I I don't think there's anybody out there that wouldn't want to race for Ferrari if the circumstances uh, allowed. Uh, My my wife and I, we had a a bit of a a discussion about that. I'm going to digress a little bit. And she said, you know, do, do you think if situation like it, it would allow for itself at at, at one time? She said, do, do you think we could ever see Lewis Hamilton where you know, driving for Ferrari? I said, who knows? Ferrari, sorry, uh, Formula One is such a strange and unpredictable sport that who knows what could happen. And, and who knows if uh, after Lewis's contract expires uh, the year after next, whether he would want to stay in Formula One. And if he did, would he want to stay for Mercedes? I said, even if it did happen... Getting used to watch, they're looking at Lewis Hamilton in red overalls would, would be a very difficult thing to get used to.
1: But like I say, I digress. Yeah, and I don't think you have to worry because it probably will never happen. Yeah, I don't think so. Mercedes as a company will never let Lewis Hamilton drive anything else than a Mercedes. So I don't think you have to worry.
0: No, no. But uh, like I say, it would be uh, it, it would take some getting used to to yeah. see him in those uh, scarlet red uh, overalls. But yeah, I mean, Charles Leclerc, wh- wh- where do we go from here? I, I think it's just uh, it, it'll be ongoing. And and like I say, I, I don't think that they want to get into a position too soon that uh, that that would uh, create tension between the team because we we've seen over the past couple of years that the team has progressed. They've had a pretty solid partnership with uh, Sebastian Vettel and Kimi Raikkonen. Uh, of course, uh, now that you've you have Charles, who is obviously very fast. I, I think it's a good thing because you need that competition in sports, within teams, between players, between drivers. And uh, and I think that it does help to motivate, and I think it helps the team to progress. But they have to keep it in check because the very last thing that Ferrari wants is to get away from what has been positive movement and closing that gap to Mercedes and have it uh, derailed and, and sidetracked and become distracted because of a bad relationship between Sebastian Vettel and, and Charles Leclerc, very much like we saw for a couple of seasons between Lewis Hamilton and Nico Rosberg and all the drama that went on there at Mercedes. And I I think that the only reason why they still won those championships when it was peak hatred between those two guys was that Red Bull were not a competitive position. Ferrari was not in a competitive con- uh, position on a more consistent basis they were able to to win races here and there but uh, they, they still just enjoyed that um, that that real advantage that they had and despite all the run-ins that uh, Lewis Hamilton and, and Nico Rosberg had with each other they were still able to, to, to win races and win championships. And I think that uh, Ferrari will be very wise to keep that situation in mind and, uh, and, and really learn from that and apply those lessons to how they move forward with uh, Sebastian Vettel and Charles Leclerc.
1: Let's continue our look at the top 10, Mark. Behind Charles Leclerc, we have Kevin Magnussen of Haas. Uh, uh, sorry, of Rich Energy Haas. A year after their debacle at the Australian Grand Prix, that was very well depicted in Drive to Survive, which we can not strongly suggest enough that you watch this show. It is amazing, and it's a it's a fun it's a fun little ten episode miniseries. But Haas with a great performance, sixth place, top ten to start twenty nineteen. This team is full of great personalities of characters. And it's racing because they love racing, and you know, they're slowly becoming one of my favorite teams. Yeah, you know, what I
0: like about uh, Haas is that th- they're another one of these teams that uh, tend to overperform uh, or, or really do a lot more with a lot less, kind of a, your a Force Indias over the past uh, several years. And uh, I, I agree, there's some, some really interesting personalities in that team. Gunther Steiner is one that really, I thought, was one of the stars of uh, the um, Drive to Survive series. <laughs> I, I think it was kind of funny that uh, when um, there there was a press conference for the Australian Grand Prix. And um, I think that uh, it was uh, Mattia Bonato who made the, the, the comment that he understood why he was stuck in the middle of uh, Christian Horner and Surreal Abitaboul and why both of those two guys were put, put at the uh, end of the table. And uh, to, to which I think Horner replied something to the fact, he said, well, yeah, you know, fair enough. But the one thing that uh, he said that really surprised him was well, not only the amount of bla- bad language <laughs> that's used in Formula One, but the fact that, uh, that, that Gunther Steiner was uh, this really scary and intense kind of guy because, you know, wh- whatever we we tend to see him is, again, like it's on the Sky Sports broadcast and it's just in some of those little clips where they talk to them like uh, for, for 30 seconds on the pit wall during the middle of the race a couple of times and you, you don't really see... A very big picture of the, the the whole thing. So to see those uh, th- those different uh, stories unfolding and and to see things um, behind the scenes and see the different sides of uh, Günther Steiner uh, w- was very fascinating, especially how he dealt with uh, Roman Grosjean and the and the problems that he had last year. But also I thought that uh, that recap that they had and how they highlighted the problems that they had at the 2018. Uh, Australian Grand Prix where the uh, the botched pit stops ended up to the cars being damaged and uh, both of Magnussen and Grosjean retiring because of mechanical failure literally just within a lap or maybe even two of pulling out of the pits you know maybe not even that and so that's why it was uh, interesting this week to see that once again they Qualified very well. Hass has typically done quite well in qualifying and and occasionally in the race in Australia, so it was it was very exciting to see that. But despite seeing K-Mag finish in P six, we had almost kind of sort of a little (laughs) bit of the same. Issue going on for Roman Grosjean this year as he did last year, and again it was the uh, the, the left front where the uh, there was damage to the wheel nut, and eventually within several laps we saw him retire from the race. So Roman certainly seems to be a little bit snake bitten in oh. Melbourne <laughs> over the past couple of seasons.
1: When I saw the mechanic wave his arms, I was like, "Oh no, oh no! Don't tell me it's happening again." And it kind of did. And I was like, what are the odds? This is is this made for TV? Is this scripted? Because if you would be a writer, I guess you would script it that way. I don't know. It just felt a bit too scripted. But life, I guess, is stranger than fiction.
0: It is. And we'll continue to talk about how Formula One and life is stranger than fiction after this short break. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. All right, welcome back to Scuderia F1. We're still breaking down the Australian Grand Prix and some of the latest news in Formula One. And Kevin, moving on from Haas, uh, of course, uh, like we said, uh, a very impressive result for for Magnussen, disappointing for Roman Grosjean. But I think the the next four places, P7 through 10, maybe slid a little bit under the radar compared to some of the larger storylines. I mean, we have Total Wolf saying that Valtteri Bottas has rediscovered the form that made him a superstar in the, the, the lower formulas and Bottas is saying this is the best race that he's ever had in Formula 1. Things like that. And of course we have the drama and the, the real anticlimactic weekends that was suffered by Danny Ricciardo. But in P7 we have Ricardo teammate Nico Hulkenberg uh, quietly bringing the car home in the top 10 after again which was a, a bit of a disappointing qualifying for the two Renaults and then in P8 and P9 you have Kimi Räikkönen in, in the Alfa Romeo P sorry in P8 to P9 you have Lance Stroll in the racing points and P10 the torpedo on his return <laughs> to Formula One Danny Kvyat brings home a point in his re-debut for Toro Rosso. So I think that those are some talking points, some guys that's really kind of snuck in there. For for me, Lance... Was a bit of a surprise because he was way down there. Of course, didn't qualify yeah. particularly well. And earlier in the race, his teammate Sergio Perez, who ended up in uh, P13, out of the points, was higher up in the running order. But at the end of the day, it was Lance Stroll that scored the points in his debut for his father's
1: Formula One team. <laughs> so a good result for Lance. Lance Stroll is becoming he, he. He's developing a style mark. A type of style that you don't see him for 58 laps. You barely see him. You barely know he's there. But he's in the points. Slowly Mm -hmm. but surely. It's a lot better than the beginning where we're either seeing Lance not finish races because his Williams would blow up or somebody would run into him. Or he would run into someone. But a couple times last year, and uh, now this year too already, he just does a non-eventful race where he does what he needs to, not too much. He's at the right place, at the right time, good pit stops, he, and he makes sure that he doesn't lose any momentum, and he goes with the flow, and he takes advantage of the one or two retirement of of, of the cars and finds himself in the points and at the start and overtaking at some point. So Lance Stroll, that was an impressive performance, nine in his debut for Racing Point. I agree with you, Mark, but uh, it's a, quite an interesting style on the track too to... Not create too much wave. Not create too much controversy. Just just mm-hmm. drive your race. The the exact uh, opposite, I say, of a Danny Kvyat or even of a Max Verstappen, which Max Verstappen, for some reason, he just always, whenever it's Max Verstappen, it always creates a lot of... Uh, of a, I don't want to say controversy because it has a negative connotation to it, and I don't want to say it in a negative he way. He makes waves. Well, yeah, he, you know he's <laughs> there, right? You know he's there. If yeah, he, you know when, yeah, yeah. If he overtakes you, he's going to rub his wheel against your wheel just a little, like like just to let you know that he was there for a second. And you'd be like, I asked
0: him. Kimmy in Austria last year, for example. <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> he just passes you. Not illegal, but. Just a bit left of legal, right? It's like, you're not going to get fined, (laughs) but technically this is not supposed to be that way. Anyways, Len Stroll uh, did the opposite of that and got uh, himself uh, two points in his first race in 2019.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, Kevin. And I think uh, one of the stories that was interesting in The Drive to Survive was obviously uh, Lawrence Stroll does figure in it at some point. And you you can tell as the series unfolds, and especially where it focuses on Williams, that he's not happy with the way that things are going. And of course, we'll talk about this uh, in a couple of minutes before the show is over, just what's going on at Williams, because again, they've got fundamental design issues with the car. So you you could even see it, and I think it was even mentioned in the program that there was concerns that at some point, that if the team is not performing and if Williams is not going to do well, then Lawrence is going to take his uh, sponsorship money and go and invest it somewhere else. And you know, and wherever that money goes, it's pretty much uh, an open and obvious secret that Lance is going to follow along, one way or another, to wherever Lawrence is investing his money. I, I don't think anybody really saw that uh, that he would uh, like head that consortium to buy out force India but of course that situation just really presented itself after VJ Malia had all those problems and uh, the the team went into administration and all those things I mean the opportunity I, I think uh, to to buy up that team just really fell into Lauren stroll's lap at the right moment so of course as soon as that happened it was just a question of when and not if Lance was going to to leave Williams and I think once that was officially confirmed. My question was now, okay, now we're going from Williams, which is a team that has obviously had issues over the past couple of years, to a a team that obviously doesn't have a, a lot of financial resources, but still somehow manages to design and build relatively competitive and reliable formula one cars so i thought to myself once lance made the 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 move official i thought well this will be the year one way or another we'll find out what lance stroll is really made of because if if they design and build a good car then you can take that 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 equation or that um, that variable out of the equation uh, that, you know, you you can't blame it on the car. So I think what we're going to see this year is going to be more indicative of uh, what uh, what Lance Stroll's potential is because it did look a little bit awkward at times in that series. And, of course, I'm sure that was manufactured to a certain extent that, you know, he just looked uh, like the the, the fortunate rich kid who has a dad that has lots of money to get him into (laughs) Formula One, which is, I guess... An accurate statement to a certain effect. and oh, it, this, On the other
1: hand, is maybe a little bit unfair. Hey, Mark, I'm going to give you a full disclosure on a text message conversation I had with one of my good friends about uh, an hour ago, just before the show, when we we're talking about Drive to Survive. And he's like, yeah, um, Lance Stroll uh, does not necessarily come off really good. He comes off like he reminds me of the kids of the rich people I know. That are always handed everything to them. And not that they're not good, not that they're not smart, but have a certain demeaning attitude, a bit of a patronizing situation Mm -hmm. when they talk Mm -hmm. to other human beings. And uh, when you have like Lance Stroll in the car saying, just fix it. I got I got transported to a different time and place where uh, when you're a customer of something and it doesn't work, you ask them to fix it. You asked him mm-hmm. to fix it. And I guess that's what it was. Lance Stroll was a customer of Williams. The product he was buying was a seat to drive in Formula One. And they were not delivering a sustainable product, a reliable product. And he was fed up. And we were seeing that petulant child being fed up with something, right? That's the that's yep. the emotion we're seeing. But that that's what they did. That's what I didn't want to say out loud. But Lance Stroll and Verstappen... Kind of come off at petulant rich kid childs. So, but they're kind of, that's what they are too. So, let's call a spade a spade doesn't mean that they're not good drivers and it doesn't mean that they're actually not nice people, maybe sometimes too.
0: Well, the other thing that uh, I think sometimes we forget a little bit too is that in, in Formula One, being it's it, in some ways, it is the ultimate team sport because you need so many different people contributing to the design and build and maintenance of uh, of the cars and of course the tires don't change themselves during the course of a race but then yet once the car is out on the track it really does come down to the driver so in, in some respects, you see that these guys really do have to be team players and and really get on uh, with everyone around them. And I mean, Michael Schumacher apparently, by all accounts, was uh, was very much a team guy and and, and really, uh, you know, took a lot of interest in the, the the engineers and the mechanics and everybody that was at Ferrari at the time that he was there. And, you know, but at the same time, you, you still need that that that's almost selfish attitude uh, to a certain extent to really Really help you to to succeed, but you know, like like, uh, like like you said, at times they did not come off all that uh, that, that great. And of course, you, you can kind of t- twist that a little ways uh, to to make it uh, for more interesting uh, entertainment. And I think it was even interesting because uh, Cyril vitabul had even said that even though that the series was uh, was uh, was uh, was, uh, was interesting and was good entertainment, that it not uh, it should not promote what he called uh, too much uh, fiction and just maybe twisting the stories or maybe manufacturing. Storylines out of things, and also uh, really sort of playing it up. And then uh, he even uh, said something that uh, wh- you know, he said what uh, not to confuse things, what is information and what is entertainment. And I think that uh, that he did to take a little bit of exception to what he called a very sensitive um, situation between themselves and uh, and Red Bull. But that's uh, a, bit a, uh, a bit of a a bit of a digression there. Yeah, but, no, uh, but just. I,
1: just- just to go on that for a second, Mark, you know, I I don't disagree with those comments by Cyril Lebiteur at all, and I would be really mad if that series was made to be a weekly show during the season, recapping the race that just happened, because it's not factual a hundred percent. There is some, I would say, some writers' interpretation of events. There is a different voiceovers that are created and seems to be. Heard like they were real and like a fake, uh, like it's not David Croft the entire show, right? And he's the one who does it, right? Normally, and it's another one, and made to narrate fake, uh, one liners from races that would concern more the mid, the mid teams. So, you know what I mean, right? The, the voiceover mm-hmm. is not the same throughout the show, and it's kind of like the, made to be seen like it was uh, those voiceovers during the season. So there's a bit of a creative leeway in the way that the results and the real facts are interpreted and the way they're shown to you on the screen. And there is a there is an editorial choice that is done in the editing room. That's true. Those are all yep. true. So I'm happy that they're not using this as a news type of show on a weekly basis during the season it's a year removed so it gives you actually time to know the real facts and then you can watch it and you can find where the creative licenses were used
0: yeah for sure i mean if you go back and look at the uh the, the one race that gets uh, focused on uh, quite a bit and that was uh, the 2018 australian grand prix which was a, a pretty boring race i mean we we talked very briefly about it just off the top of the show and they managed to make that uh, or refocus the show into a different storyline because a they didn't have the um, the access to ferrari and mercedes so they they weren't really able to use anything that was uh, wasn't already out there that was already previously available footage if you want to call it that and then you you had uh, the situation that you know they had to find a slightly different storyline to 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 work on, and they didn't even really say who won won the race or how the way race was really won, and uh, certainly you know it was under those really bizarre circumstances, which Formula One took a lot of cris- criticism for, at the time that uh, S- Sebastian Vettel was able to win the race under the virtual safety car, and I I don't know how that exactly worked out to this day and age, but it, it just did. It was just the the way that the cars were positioned on the track, and the fact that when they have that uh, virtual safety car in effect, that he was able to beat Lewis Hamilton when he went in for his, uh, or Sebastian was able to beat Lewis Hamilton uh, to the first place after changing the tires, and Mercedes had that problem with their with their, um, with their software, just uh, tracking the cars around the track. And then another race which was not really all that exciting to watch was the the, the Monaco Grand Prix. I mean, it was a great story in the fact that Danny Ricciardo was able to win it, Mm-hmm. <laughs> excuse me, after leading the race for basically three quarters of the Grand Prix after ZBG UK failed. And it was kind of redemption after losing the, uh, the, the the race or having it yanked out of his hands a couple of years previously when he went into the, the the pit stop in what was that, 2016, where he went in for a tire change and there was unfortunately no tires. So they were able to kind of spin that uh, that Grand Prix around th- those couple of things. So it it is certainly interesting to see how they can do that and and reshape the narrative into a situation that uh, that, that really suits the way that they they want to tell it anyways kevin we're just going to break here again for one final word from our sponsors and then on the other side i think it's it's about time that we really delve into the latest drama with williams racing anyways we'll talk about that after this short pause Okay, welcome back to 3 F1, Mark and Kevin here again, breaking down all the latest news in Formula One. And Kevin, well, Williams almost oh. a second and a half to two seconds off of the pace, and they have uh, admitted again that they have a fundamental fault on their 2019 car, the FW42, <laughs> and it just seems to that that all the I don't know, all the rot is just coming to the surface. And it just yep. seems that when, when you think you've heard it all about all the dirty laundry coming out and all the problems that they're having, something else comes out just to make you shake your head even one more time. My neck's starting to get sore.
1: Yeah. Uh, Williams is a tire fire of organization right now. Uh, you know, you you mentioned the, the major flaw they have. Yeah, they have one major flaw. They can't build a car to save their lives. Oh, man, what's going on with Williams? It's Is it organizational? Because we've been talking about this for a few years now. Oh, we've had people come in, look at our organization, and decided to do things differently. And oh, we, we're trying to rekindle the success of the past. Like, forget about the past. Forget about who you were. Forget about where you come from. Forget about... It's, it's, it's non-relevant. It's non-relevant to what you're actually trying to do. You won when Formula 1 was different than Formula 1 is now. You won where, with the exact same budget that you had now, you were the top team in the entire sport. Your budget stayed the same, but everybody else is quadrupled or tenfold their budget, and you find yourself becoming Minardi. There's a saying in superhero movies that you... Uh, you. What's the saying, Mark? It's you, you strive to be the, the, the hero, or you live long enough to see yourself turn into the bad guy well oh
0: you're thinking of the uh the the dark knight yeah something like that yeah, exactly well, yeah i know that uh, you either uh, live to become a hero or, li- or uh, live long enough yeah, to yeah i know a... the one that that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, such a classic uh, comment so, that i can't remember off the, uh, the the top of my mind but you know it, it really is true that they have really um they they've just really got these big problems and again I, I know that we keep uh, going on about the drive to survive here but the, the one thing that really stood out for me among many things was you had at different uh, points throughout the series you have the, the one that focuses on Force India that, that, that really has a lot to, to do with uh, Vijay Amalia in, in the first half of the program and then all of a sudden you know his legal problems come to a big head the team goes into administration and they, they show Force India's uh, head headquarters and they show inside like the 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 building itself and to me it looks very similar in size and and layout to the office that I work in and you have the um, the administrators there and then you have Otmar Safnauer the team principal sort of talking to, uh, to, to all the the employees there and I just thought well this is just seems like a very humble and, and, and very small operation compared to some of the other ones. And again, that, that, that's why it sort of impresses me what they've done in terms of uh, results on the track over the years. But then you look at it earlier in the um, in the series where I think the description on Netflix was something like uh, the Williams team fights to remain relevant or, or yeah. words to that effect. And, you know, they have this uh, this debrief or sorry, not a debrief, but basically a big team meeting in advance of one of the uh, the upcoming races. And it's this big, huge auditorium filled with hundreds of people. And at the back of the room, there's it, it's basically standing room only. And then up the front, you've got Ross Smedley, who's now no longer with Williams. You've got Patty Will- Lowe, who is now on in leave. limbo yeah,
1: he's on <laughs> and, and
0: Claire Williams and I was just thinking they've got this big state of the art this sexy looking uh, facility and it, it, it's almost a polar opposite of, uh, of Force India yet on the track the teams yeah. these two teams are performing completely differently Force India or Racing Point whatever they call themselves yeah. typically more uh, kind of competitive a lot more reliable and, and Williams just keeps going backwards but this is the second car in a row that Williams has designed where they have fundamental design. Design flaws in it, and for a team that even though that they have a smaller budget compared to the some of the teams that they're racing against, that doesn't excuse the 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 design flaws that they have the car because there are some very basic misconceptions about the, uh, the the rules and regulations of Formula One. If you're admitting two years on the trot that you have fundamental problems with the the design of the car and then you have your drivers coming out saying, oh, you know, well, the car really isn't that bad that if we can just fix this problem and then well, it comes out, well, we can fix this problem, but it's probably going to take several months. So who knows? Maybe by the end of the year, <laughs> they'll be able yeah. to close that gap to, to some of the cars in front them but it just uh, it, it really boggles my mind that they can be so far off the mark so you know, in,
1: in con- consecutive years. You hear Claire Williams saying, oh on my watch this will never happen and on my watch and on my watch well on your watch Williams is becoming irrelevant. On your watch because you're worried of protecting the past, worried of protecting the history of the legacy, it's already damaged. Williams is already a laughing stock. It's not time to trying to protect the past again. It's time to clearly look at what's not working, and what's not working is everyone's too worried about making sure we're still we're an independent team and we're not going to become a a a number two team of somebody else and a sister team and all that and all that. But you find yourself with a dwindling budget that is barely enough now. To make you a car that will even be close to being competitive with the mid-pack. Never mind the top guys. So, I think it's time Williams is... A gr- it's it's time that Williams accepts that they're not in the 90s anymore. They're not in the early 2000s. And what they can do without partnering with some with a bigger fish is a very limited amount of results and limited amount of... Of performance of a car. So Mm -hmm. uh, until they accept and they maybe find a way to grow again as an entity by partnering with one of the manufacturers that are not present in Formula One or finding other source of finance, finance, maybe by having a new owner come in or something. But I, I think it's to that point now that it's not just a question of money. It's a question of they lost the plot, and it will take so much money for them to find it that you kind of need a relaunch. You kind of need a new start. You kind of need to shake things up a little.
0: Well, absolutely, because uh, not only are they getting it wrong on the track, but they've lost... They lost Martini as a title sponsor. They lost Lawrence Stroll and his sponsorship money. And on top of that, they're losing the money from the World Championship because they're just not scoring enough points on, on the track to get the money out of that big pot that they they divvy up among the teams at the end of the year. So they're they're just not getting the money that they just had so uh, of, of course that's an issue but I, I just go back to the point I made a couple of minutes ago is that despite losing all those things that's that, that they're just still not grasping the, the the fundamentals or um, interpreting the rules correctly, but maybe that's a symptom of the problem is that because they have these decreased funds that they're, they're not able to to get the people in there that that are able to interpret the rules and the regulations and, and design and build a car that's going to work around it. I mean, you've seen Ross Smedley leave, who's had success at other teams, you know, yeah. Patty Lowe has clearly not lived up to the the expectations.
1: Well, what, and, what uh, can you do? If you're given lemons and you're asked to make an orange juice you can't you have lemons give me a different supplier give me something different and i'll give you your orange juice but you (laughs) have given me a box of lemons for me mark it's it's as simple as this is you lost so many knob so many bases of knowledge with all those people that have come and gone over the years. Mm -hmm. Williams was known uh, as a team that would find a talent hidden somewhere. A guy who wasn't known. Adrian Newey. Where did he get his big break, his big start? Jock Clear. Where did he get his Patrick Head? Where Mm -hmm. do all those guys that are super important in Formula 1 nowadays and have been over the last 25 years, where did they get their start? Mid-90s with Williams. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. what you need to create again. A place where people think and trying to brainstorm and do try to, like you say, make things with not a lot of money in a way that is positive. It's about creativity. It's about finding a new design and making sure that it works and finding that partner. Williams was the one who was able to get the most out of the Renault partnership in the mid-90s. They need to find their Renault. Clearly, Mercedes is not the most favorite partner for them because it's just a number for them. They're like the fourth team in the, in in hierarchy when it comes down to to the engines, right? So, so there's a lot of things Williams need to do, but one of them is to rekindle their eye for talent. I guess Frank Williams not being in charge. I guess he was the guy who was finding those great talents, and mm-hmm. we don't have that person anymore. But but that's where Williams lost. All that, it's, it's the knowledge and talent of the people of Williams that used to make that team great. Not the name, not the person in charge.
0: Exactly. So, Kevin, just to refresh your memory, the, the, the quote you were looking for was, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. So, the, the it,
1: it should be you retire as a top team or you live long enough to see yourself becoming D.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's the that's the Formula One equivalent because it, it is uh, so very true. So talking about heroes and villains, uh, perhaps more heroes than villains. I just uh, wanted quickly to to touch on a couple more guys, and um, Carlos Sainz. I guess probably falls more into the hero category. He didn't really come off uh, all that badly on the, uh, the the Netflix series. He just had a very rotten weekend. He got caught out by uh, Robert Kubica touching the wall in the qualifying and didn't get out of Q1. And then he had his engine blow up during the race. So very much like Danny Ricardo wanted to forget his uh, Australian Grand Prix. Carlos Sainz wanted to forget his. Another guy that maybe wanted to forget his uh, Australian Grand Prix was Antonio Giovinazzi making his second debut in Formula One. He damaged his uh, wing on the first lap of the race. And uh, he had, well, also not just his front wing, but also his floor. Uh, So that was a a problem that uh, plagued him throughout uh, the the race. And then uh, Kimi Raikkonen, who uh, did uh, quite well, I thought, uh, to bring the car home in a P8, which I thought was about what you would expect for for Kimi in the Alfa Romeo. But he said, that uh, his uh, there, there was a tear off visor that got stuck in his brake duct that uh, really compromised his uh, strategy and forced his uh, his uh, early uh, pit stop in the in the race so that affected him to a to a certain extent but certainly it was a a very very. Interesting um, weekend of racing in Australia. And, of course, we have uh, about a week to go before Bahrain. And uh, Pirelli has uh, decided to release the um, the tire choices for the Bahrain Grand Prix next week. So we see that uh, they are going to have the uh, three compounds available, the C1, C2, and C3. And so that's uh, those are the, the hardest uh, starting with the C1 and the medium, which is the C2, and then the soft is the C3 tire. So you have a, a real combination of um, of, uh, of everybody picking those tires. Most of the, uh, the the teams and drivers are opting for the C3 tire. Uh, not too many people are taking the uh, the, the C1s and just a, a handful of C2 tires. So we shall see. We will be back to racing before too long. And Kevin... That's about all I've got for this week here on Scuderia F1. I'm out. I'm all done.
1: That's about the same for me, Mark. As always, you can follow Mark on Twitter at MarkJRDaily, at KevLarme for myself, and at f one pod for the show. You can find us on Overtime Media and anywhere you get your podcasts. But as always, for Mark Daily, I'm Kevin Larme, and have a great Formula One. Thanks for listening to the Scuderia F1 Podcast. If you want to get the show notes for this episode,
0: then head over to scuderiaf1pod.com. Want to get in touch with us? Then email us at scuderiaf1pod at gmail.com.